I analyze dreams to keep my head level Strip mining the system to stare at the devil A whiny voice flexing but it got no real power You tell them to flee and they'll be gone in an hour One words are like brass knuckles connecting to y'all's jaws of glass I ain't losing, I don't lose, so fight fair This is for the real ones who ears are open, no they're here There's a reason my voice comes through while you're sitting here Something gets a fine tooth, a bump on your way to work And other know the spirit is hitting in, so let it work Yeah Ladies and gentlemen, you're tuned into Glowry Podcast. I'm your host, Monk. Welcome. Now, first of all, let's get into the plugs. Lil Nook, the new mixtape. Again, artist is Glowry. That'll be out on May 5th. And in fact, if I check the date, I think it drops around the same time this episode will release. But May 5th, if it's not May 5th yet, if it's already May 5th, that has dropped. Go get it. Again, we're taking that underground hip-hop sound and putting our own little spin on it there. Uh, The book, Reclaiming the Man, A Rough Guide to Knowing Your Divine Self. Go get that. You can get it on Amazon and paperback or digital. Or if you want copies for yourself or a small group, you can email uh, glowrymusic at gmail.com and we can get you a discounted rate. Also, if you want a free copy, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcast. Take a screenshot of your rating and review and email it to glowrymusic at gmail.com. You'll be entered into a drawing for a free copy of that book. Now getting into it today is another episode dedicated strictly to fitness and all things related to health and fitness and we are taking Q&A directly from listeners. So let's get into it. Uh, First one, when do you take breaks in training? That's a great question. Breaks in training. So for me personally, here's how I do it. Oh, other part of the question, uh, this listener said, you know, do you go three months hard and then take a week off or what? So here's what I do. This is me personally, is I go three weeks into a phase and then I take a week off, quote unquote, a week off. So, but in that week off, I'm not just sitting around not doing anything. What I'm doing is I'm playing my sport, right, which is basketball, And I'm doing things that are active, but I am just not like lifting weights, if that's part of my training cycle. I'm not, you know, doing training specific things. I'm doing things that are active and allow my body to be active, burn calories, get a good sweat, get blood flow to every areas. But I'm doing the things I enjoy doing in that week off. I'm just not like training specifically for them. That's what I do. So, for instance, um, and the other thing I might add in, like if I've been doing a weight-heavy cycle, I'll do three weeks on that weight-heavy cycle, and then I'll take that week off, and then that week off, I'll work in some isometrics, and then just play my sport, run, jump, stretch, break a sweat, you know, throw a ball around, hoop a little bit, something like that. That's what I found for me and my purposes works the best. Now, when I've been on other programs, I've done other things. You know, when I was just on a pure strength building program, 
it's like, yeah, you go, you know, 12 weeks hard on your program and then you just take a deload week and you might not do anything or you might do your basic lift and do your basic things that you were doing in that training program, but do them at a much lower intensity. But I think the key you're getting to here in this question is rest is essential, especially when you're training, especially if you're trying to develop strength, if you're trying to stimulate muscle growth, and if you're training towards athletic performance. That rest, that recovery is essential. It might actually even be more important than the training because a lot of studies have shown and, you know, anecdotal evidence from both my personal you know, my own personal experience and other athletes I've worked with is athletes who had more recovery and less training than some athletes that say trained more, but they didn't, they didn't get on the recovery as much actually had more gains within the same time period. Very interesting, right? So, you, you know, you could take athlete one who does this three month block, but and they never miss a day, but they're only getting four hours of sleep a night versus this other person who does the same three-month block, but let's say they miss one day a week in that block. A lot of times, those, and, but they get a little bit better recovery, even just missing that one day a week off in some instances has shown that yield better results because recovery wasn't a priority for the athlete that trained more. So especially with strength and especially with explosive performance, so, you know, speed development, um, uh, jumping. Jumping is kind of its own category. But anything regarding um, speed, strength, explosive power, uh, the recovery really has to be the priority, and there are various ways to do that. Again, that's how I do it personally, and kind of the phases I go into, and I got this from Tim Grover, who was famously Michael Jordan's trainer, trained Kobe Bryant, Dwayne Wade, and a whole bunch of other high-level athletes that y'all don't even know about. If you got the list of people that have worked with him and been affiliated with him, it will blow your mind, but I got this from him. Um, I typically do three weeks of an isometric buildup. Then you do three weeks of a combination. It's um, lighter weight, heavier repetition mixed in with plyometrics. And then you go into three weeks of heavy weights with some different types of plyometrics. And within each of those blocks, you have a week off in between, which allows your body to reset and adapt to what you just put it through. So it's that week off where your body kind of makes the adaptation, recovers, and gets ready for the next phase. And then after I go through that block, then I have some other stuff that I do. And typically I'll go through a phase where I'm working on endurance. I'll move into a phase where I'm working specifically on strength. And then I'll move into a phase where I'm working on speed. That brings me through six months of the year. And then that other six months out of the year, I'm really just focused more on maintenance and whatever my schedule allows. Right now, for instance, the date of this recording, I'm on day, what are we, day 53 of a 60-day body weight and odd ob- object challenge. I'm actually going to do a full episode detailing my experience doing that. So 
A good question there on how I train. So really, every fourth week, I take that week off and let my body adapt. And by staying in that trajectory, I've remained pretty injury-free since I started that. And I think it's a good methodology. But again, it all really just depends on uh, what your goals are, what your purposes are. Um, You know, when I was doing more of a CrossFit-heavy style, uh, they do... Or what I was doing there was three days on, one day off, two days on, and then another day off. So that was another way to do it. However, for me, I started gaining a lot of weight. And I mean, my purposes are really to stay as strong as possible at a light of weight as possible and still feel strong. So that's for me. But that was a great question. Hope that helps implementing stuff into your own personal program. I will add to this in terms of recovery. When I'm doing more body weight based movements, my recovery tends to be a lot quicker. I'll just say that. I think it taxes the nervous system less, so you need less recovery. So when I notice when I'm focusing mostly on body weight, moving my body weight through space and body weight movements, my recovery is quicker, my endurance gets better, and I need just less time to recover, basically. But that is a good question. So next question. Developing athleticism and developing fitness. Monk, you talked about in a previous episode how fitness and athleticism aren't the same thing. Can you talk a little bit about developing athleticism and developing fitness? So athleticism can be developed. It's believed that there's some genetic blueprint and some people have it, some people don't. Some people just have the athleticism and they'll always have it. Some people aren't born with it and they'll never have it. Now, some people are just born with it and there are a variety of reasons and things we could look at to get into how people are more genetically gifted or not. But everybody has a genetic potential, but there are things you can do training-wise and diet-wise, lifestyle-wise to develop your athletic potential. Most people who are considered not athletic actually have good athletic potentiality. They're just not doing things to develop or put the stress on the body that will develop the athletic potential that they have sitting in there. Other people that seem naturally athletic most of the time have done something at an early age that unlocked that athletic potential and they've learned those movement patterns at an early age, early on to where when they're older, it's just seemed like something that was natural. And normally what we mean when we talk about the developing athleticism, it's running fast and jumping high. These things you can't necessarily teach or train for. However, you can do some things to put your body in a situation that allow you to become more athletic. The basic formula for that is strength through length. So if you can get a greater range of motion in whatever the thing is that you're doing, and then get stronger through that whole range of motion, you will get more athletic, right? You're going to allow more access in your body to do the thing that you want to do, whether that's run faster, whether that's jump higher, whether that is to be stronger, okay? And then athleticism, when we talk about that, it changes according to the context, right? 
if we use a sports analogy in basketball, if we look at positions, if you are a center, being an athletic center has its own set of criteria versus being an athletic small forward. You know, historically, small forward is probably the most athletic person on the court overall, generally, right? But an athletic center, you could take George Murison, if you know him, the guy from My Giant, that old movie, seven foot seven, played center, not very athletic. You compare him to a guy like Dwight Howard, one of the most athletic, maybe the most athletic centers to ever play the game. See, obviously two different things. However, if you compare Dwight Howard's athleticism to, let's say, LeBron James, Dwight Howard is athletic, but he's not quite as athletic as LeBron James. If you compare them just based on objective athleticism at the, as a general thing however lebron james as a small forward right there's a couple guys in the league that are more athletic than him i would argue as well so it all depends on the context you could take the same analogy like if we were comparing football players an athletic left tackle is going to be different than an athletic running back all running backs you would look at are generally athletic most likely however some have other potentialities and make them more athletic than others. Look at an old school running back like a dude like Ron Dane wasn't super athletic but was super effective. Whereas you look at a guy like LT or Reggie Bush, super, super, super athletic, freakishly athletic, and also effective. Okay, so the, so athleticism does have a different context and fitness can change according to the context because being fit means possessing the abilities to do the job or accomplish the task in front of you. However, when we talk about fitness, what we are are having a balance of things that you're able to do or having a bunch of different tools in your belt, right? So when we mean fitness, are you generally strong? Do you generally have good endurance? Are you generally fast? Can you generally adapt to situations? Can you do a variety of different things? This is what we mean by fitness because that would allow you to be fit or fit into a bunch of different things. Although you might not be the strongest, you might not be the fastest, you might not have the best endurance, you can do a little bit of everything. That's what we mean in fitness. Now, is there a correlation between the two? I think if you are developing in your fitness which for most people, this is a goal. You want to be well-rounded in your fitness because it applies to things you can do in your everyday life. Me, I'm a bit of a bit of an anomaly because I coach athletes specifically for the abilities or to train them in their abilities to grow in athletic performance. Therefore, I have to do things myself to demonstrate what I'm asking my athletes to do to be athletically an athletic performer myself so being fit for me also comes with a degree of athleticism but i'm not most people because most people don't do what i do for a living so i have to have a degree of athleticism in order to demonstrate things to my athletes however before i was doing this i wasn't as concerned about the athletic side i was just concerned with being fit 
And so developing fitness, so if you are developing in your fitness, and I found this to be true because I got away from the athletic side for a while and then I came back to it. And I was doing all this different fitness stuff and had a good baseline in pretty much every area. And then when I started, hey, I need to unlock this athleticism again to be able to do some things to make me more effective in my sport and my job. And I believe, just purely anecdotally, I believe because I had been developing my fitness that I was able to adapt to the athletic training, training to become more athletic, more explosive, faster, and jump higher, those type of things, because I had been well-rounded in my fitness up to that point. So I think fitness doesn't necessarily create or build athleticism, however... I think the fitness, it just gives you a, a better starting point if you were to want to develop athleticism. And again, I made this point last time I talked about this. You have people that are super athletic and then are fit. I see that a lot in the basketball world. We have a lot of kids that come into the gym super naturally athletic, have a lot of natural gifts, but when it comes to being fit, they're lacking in certain things. There are a lot of imbalances that they have. And so for them, we're trying to get them more fit, which again, when they get more fit, it actually ends up increasing their athleticism because they're more balanced and they already have their natural gifts that they're using. So a good question about that. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, which I guess by the way you worded your question, you probably have, but go back and listen to that. There might be some more nuggets in there for you. Uh, next question, Monk. We're told to consume a wide variety of foods, all the rainbow colors, fruits and veggies, a balance of red and white meats, and just the right amount of fish and seafood. To And also, we need to throw in some seeds and nuts to stack on, maybe some dairy and some grains here and there. But really, back in the day when people argu- arguably led simpler, healthier lives, access to every variety and color of food wasn't an option in fact, most of the time, I would suppose they just lived on a very, very small variety of foods and did just fine. So, in short, would our bodies be best fueled by a small variety of consistent, predictable foods instead of the diversity we're told to consume? Great question. So, there's a whole lot going on here. And generally, right, if we stick to the rainbow diet or whatever, it's not going to be bad. But, my personal opinion is I'm not thoroughly convinced of that this uh, style of eating is necessarily the best. I don't think it's bad, so don't take me wrong, but I think there are a lot of other ways to do it. I think this is just something organizations or you know these large corporations that are in charge of things like that, they put out these dietary measures. Like This is something that you could follow on a large scale that would be good for most people. But you get into, um, you know, the when you get into this, really you get into how the food system is structured, how food is produced and all of this other stuff. And so it, this question kind of sends us down a rabbit hole and I'll go down it a little bit uh, just to stretch your thinking and maybe hit some points you didn't know about. Again, I don't think one thing is better or worse. I just think things are different because that second part of your question was 
related to back in the day, people had simpler or arguably simpler and healthier lives, but they didn't have access to all the food. So let's look at that. So back in the day, basically, things were large-scale agriculture wasn't what it is today. People ate locally sourced food, and a lot of times it was you're getting a lot of stuff out of your garden. You might have your own chickens, your own cows, whatever. You slaughter it or your neighbor slaughters it. Or at worst, even if you're more in a more urban setting, you're getting your food, your vegetables, your meat, whatever, from a local rancher or a local farm not too far away. That makes sense. So the deal with that is those foods, because they're locally sourced and they were probably organically sourced as well, they were more nutrient-dense, and then people ate seasonally. They ate according to the season. So they did have a good variety in their diet, but they ate according to what was in season. See, we live in this weird culture now where we have access to everything at all times, and our bodies don't really adjust to the season. And then, of course, if you're like me, when you live in, you know, the southeast coast of Texas, there really aren't seasons. So you live in, so almost everything grows all year round here, but then you're able to ship due to technology, due to shipping practices, due to how we import and export foods. And then the storage of these foods, we can get any food we want at any time, basically. But the problem is with the transport and the preservation, right? Preservatives of these types of foods, we lose a lot of the nutrient quality and the flavor profile of what the foods are supposed to taste like, especially at the micronutrient level. The macronutrients stay um, intact for the most part, but it's the micronutrients that we lose. So this suggestion that we eat, you know, a wide variety of colors, you know, and the red meat and the white meat and, you know, some grain and some nuts and all of this, that's good because it's what it does to your microbiome. But part of that has to do with, again, the way these foods are stored because we have access to them and because they are shipped, but they lose a lot of their micronutrient profile. Whereas back in the day when you're eating locally sourced food that's close to you, food you aren't so removed from the process from, they're going to have more nutrients naturally in the food. So for instance, like if I grow some spinach or let's just say my neighbor up the road. Okay. So this Town that's up the road from me, you know, 15 miles. Town, Conroe, right? Let's say I have a friend who grows spinach in Conroe. All right, he grows that spinach. He plucks it that day, throws it in a bag, and then I go out there and buy it from him in his little market. That's That spinach is going to have way more nutrients in it than if I went to Kroger two miles from my house, right, bought a bag of spinach cooked and say let's let's just say it's the same type of spinach it's going to have less nutrients it's going to have preservatives and all of these other things just to for it to be able to survive transport and then survive on the shelf until someone can come pick it up so that's part of why the dietary suggestions are the way they are it has to do with the transport and the economics of the food not necessarily 
what is good and what is bad for you, but it all gets down to the nutrient quality. You have to eat that way because of your general foods, unless you're getting them right there next to you locally, they're not going to provide as many nutrients as something that is locally sourced or something you grew your own. And then the second part of that is also we're not eating seasonally. You know, people led these relatively simple diets back in the day, but there was a lot of variety in their diets, but they were eating seasonally, right? So when it was bean season, right, you're eating a whole lot of beans. You're eating beans because they're in season, and then you're, you know, canning and jarring some for when stuff isn't growing, and you're eating seasonally according to what's in season. And now Food grows during certain seasons and your body actually craves the foods if we live closer to the earth because then you have to remember, right, we were outside more. We were getting sunlight. Our feet and our hands were on the bare ground, so we had a lot less inflammation in our bodies. That's something a lot of people don't realize is that by not getting into contact with the earth, with our skin, it actually creates a lot more inflammation in our bodies because we're wearing you know, shoes with rubber soles. We're in these buildings. We're not in natural light. And then these buildings have substances that actually trigger inflammatory reactions in our body. And it's not a lot. It's subtle. But trust me, you know, this practice of grounding or earthing that is starting to become popular. Like, look, just notice the difference. Um, Go outside, sit on the ground or put your bare feet on the ground for 15 to 20 minutes one day and just notice how much more relaxed and at ease you feel after you do that. And there's a very real reaction in your body that's happening is because your body is getting rid of free radicals. It's getting rid of all these weird isotopes of electron of stored electrons that cause inflammation in your body. And what it's doing is it's getting your body closer to an alkaline state and it's removing stress hormones in your bloodstream. So that that's part of it, just people living closer to the earth in those times. Your body starts to react and crave certain things according to the seasons. And so that's another part of it. I mean, just a quick example, like if you notice when the prime growing seasons for citrus fruits are tend to correlate with when the cold and flu season is, Right? So Mother Nature, God, our bodies know naturally what they need. We have just have all these other things and processes that have kind of taken us away from the natural rhythms we have lived under for so long. This massive food production scale that we live under right now is really this new thing. It's a brand new thing in human history. Their benefits in terms of like we're able to feed a massive amount of people that we wouldn't have been able to feed, but it does come at a cost. Um, and I think we're seeing some of that cost too. So to answer your question, um, our body is best fueled by a small variety of consistent, predictable foods instead of a diversity we're told to consume. Again, it depends on your goals, your person your personality, where you live, what your day-to-day lifestyle is. It really does. I think if you simplify things, you know, like starting an elimination diet, you know, that's like keto is so popular. Keto is basically an elimination diet. 
vegetarianism or veganism is an elimination diet. But if you follow some type of elimination diet, what's the other one people are doing? Paleo is a is an elimination diet. Carna the carnivore diet where you eat nothing but meat and elimination diet. When you follow an elimination diet, you start to realize there are things that you could do without, things that your body reacts better to than others. But I think the thing with all of it is you do one of these elimination diets, and I don't think anyone is better than the other. I think what happens is your health gets a boost because you're eliminating a bunch of the waste that you're normally consuming now is not there. You know, some of the studies have shown like on a carnivore diet, this recommendation of like how much vitamin C that you need. Well, if you're not consuming any carbohydrates like you would on a carnivore diet, you need little to no vitamin C to spike your, you know, to spike your immune system and make yourself more immune the way the protein and cell synthesis works. However, if you eat a diet that is more carbohydrate heavy, these studies have shown, yeah, you need some more vitamin C in your diet, and it has to do with how your immune system reacts with carbohydrates. So it's very nuanced. My two cents is always keep it simple. Keep it simple and do what works for you. Uh, like I said in a previous episode, I'm a fan of counting your macros and knowing what type of macros you need for you in accordance with what your goals are. And then in counting your macros and getting your macros in check, then you can figure out where you need supplementation or where you need to add things into your diet in regards to your micronutrients. But at the end of the day, um, consuming the large, you know, the large variety of the diet Again, that all comes from how we produce food on a large scale now because we're just simply not as getting enough, as many nutrients as we would have back in the day on a local, getting foods more locally sourced. So I hope that, one, answers your question, and then two, gives you a little food for thought, pun intended, in regards to diet. And again, I'm not a certified dietitian or nutrition expert. I have done a lot of research on this. But if you want to take a deeper dive into that, uh, check out Dr. Peter Atia. He's a good one. Uh, Dr. Andrew Weil, that's uh, W-I-E-L. And what's the name of that guy? Check out the book Metabolical. That's a good one. I think that's Dr. David R. Lustig. Check out his work. There's some good stuff in regards to the diet side. A little more. These are the sources, again, I'm kind of riffing off of. A Mark Sisson Primal Blueprint is another one that will give you some good, more expert deep dive stuff into the stuff that I was talking about in regards to your question. But thank you for that question. All right, next one. So, Monk, I'm going to follow you on Facebook for a while years ago you were doing a lot of distance running and posting your daily runs you were doing eight to ten miles a day now in your post i hardly see you running at all and when you do it's mostly sprints so what's the deal with that 
as an athlete or as a person with a, on a limited schedule, what would you recommend? Sprinting for cardio or doing longer distance runs for cardio? So again, good question. And one, I'll just I'll just say right off, like, yeah, you know, back 10-ish, probably 8 to 10 years ago in that time frame, I was focused mostly on endurance training. I was running ultra marathons and marathons. So obviously to do that, you got to get your miles in. Now, there's a way to do it without getting this many miles in, but it's going to hurt a lot more on race day. I did it both ways. It's just an experiment. And check out the episode I did with Danny Campbell. We actually talk about this a little bit. Running a marathon with little to no training, but doing other things to get your cardiovascular system in check. You can do it, but the rest of your body is going to be very, very sore and a lot less resilient to all the pounding you're going to take when you run a longer distance. But um, if you're putting in the miles, your body's going to be a lot more resilient to that. However, the sacrifice on the front end is you're going to spend a lot more time running and training. But my two cents is bang for your buck. If you're someone that's on a busy schedule, sprinting, really sprinting's the ultimate exercise. It really is. It's a full body workout. That's why these professional track and field athletes are in such good straight shape because they do sprinting for a living. Uh, it accomplishes a lot in a short time period right you get cardiovascular training in depending on the length and the duration of the type of sprints you actually train all three energy systems you can build muscle through sprints and you also burn fat at a higher rate you know you're going to start getting into a fat burning zone if you sprint for 20 seconds at a maximum effort versus if you were to jog a long slow distance you would have to to get this to tap into the fat burning zone, unless you're already in a ketogenic state, you would have to run for more or less an hour at a slow pace to tap into the fat burning mechanism. So to me, sprinting gives you more bang for your buck. And for my purposes, like I said, I'm in a position in my life now where I coach athletes, but it's designed strictly towards athletic performance in certain sports. So I have to, in order to train these athletes, demonstrate what is necessary for them, and to play the sports of my own, both for fun and in my job, I have to maintain a certain level of athleticism myself. One of the key ways to develop athleticism, maintain athleticism, especially if you're getting older, is to sprint, right? And you look back at to what we did when we were kids, we sprinted all the time. It's a natural part of the human system, the human organism. So sprinting, for me, gives you more bang for your bunk. It, develop, it develops athleticism. I will say this, however, you got to go low and slow with sprints, meaning if you haven't been doing a lot of sprinting, you haven't sprinted in years, Right, do some longer distance running to get your body used to running. Work on your flexibility, work on your mobility, and then gradually ramp up the speed until you can get to where you're running sprints comfortably. Another way to do that, once you can get to where you're running sprints comfortably, you want to start short. I'm talking 20 yard, 30 yard sprints, do a couple of them. Call it a day. Do a couple of them. Call it a day. Do that for a couple weeks. Do that two or three times a week for a couple weeks, and then you maybe increase the distance. 
then eventually you can get to where, you know, I, I'll be honest, man, I don't do anything longer than 200 meters typically where I'm on a, on a sprint zone. Uh, most of my sprint work has to do, I do the old, the old Herschel Walker program where I'm doing hill sprints, a lot of uphill sprints, and then downhill sprints are actually good because it helps with your foot turnover and your hip extension, which is a good deal. Um, it actually helps lengthen, works on that, not the concentric, concentric, the eccentric phase of your muscles as your muscles are lengthening, which then in turn helps your muscles grow. So huge fan of sprints. If I were saying more bang for your buck, sprint buck sprints are better. However, running distance isn't bad either. Like I'm saying, me as an athlete, I'm trying to do things that were going to keep me athletic and allow me to do and demonstrate what I need to in my sport for the athletes that I train because that's what I do for a living. However, I do. You know, we're going into this phase right now where Murph is coming up. So I'm dialing back some of the sprinting and the explosive training, and I'm amping up a little more the endurance side which means i'm running a little bit more longer distance you know i'm doing 400 meter repeaters 800 meter repeaters stuff like that where normally i'd be doing shorter sprints 100 meters 400 um 100 meters 200 meters 60 meters 40 meters you know um my go-to i got this we got this hill outside of my job it's you know like a 40 meter hill 40 meter hill sprints and that's, that's what I do. And then, of course, I play a lot of basketball, which gets all of that in at the same time. You get your distance. You get your sprint. You get your mid-level where you're in that anaerobic capacity. So you get all that going on there. But that is a great question, sprints versus distance. I say if you can, do both. But if you have to choose one, sprinting, gets it's just more bang for your buck. Again, if you're in a time crunch. And then as you get older, speed's one of the first things that goes. And a lot of these studies have shown speed, foot speed is one of the biggest indicators of injury. So those who don't have as good a foot speed and foot agility when they're older in life have a lot higher likelihood of getting injured, like falling and things. So if you're developing that as you're aging, it's going to help you be more resilient in your older age. Also, sprinting well running in general is going to help build your bone density but sprinting because it's more high impact is going to build your bone density your ligament um, and cartilage resistance and it's going to forge those connections even more it's going to make you stronger overall however again caveat you can't just start all out doing it if you haven't been doing it for a while you know for me personally I was running a lot, you know, back then when you're seeing me do all those posts. But, like, literally I had to take, you know, six months to a year to really build my body back up to start running fast and with power. So, you know, and I'm young and in shape while I'm doing that. So if you're old and out of shape starting to do this, you got to build up gradually to do it. And there are a lot of good programs you can look at to try to do it. But experiment. With that, let me know how it goes. That's a great question. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's all I got for today on the fitness questions. I like doing these fitness episodes. It's kind of a niche in terms of what we do. But for those of y'all who enjoy it, I'll keep doing it. Again, it's something I nerd out about, and I have the privilege of being able to dig into a lot of this in my day job. So if I can bring value 
through this content to you in terms of, again, the whole idea between optimizing your fitness is to optimize your life and to allow you to have a better quality of life, which in turn means a happier life. So remember all the stuff we plugged at the beginning. Get on that. Rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Take a screenshot. Send it to glowerymusic at gmail.com. I'll enter you into a free drawing for my book, Reclaiming the Man, A Rough Guide to Knowing Your Divine Self. If you haven't picked that up yet, pick it up on Amazon. If you have picked it up, that picked it up. pick up a copy for your friends and give it to them. Uh, if you want discounted rates or group rates, email us. And we'll work a deal out with you. A little Nook album dropping May 5th. Hit that out on the music side. And people have asked, like, how can we help grow this? Look, the easiest way you can grow this is just when you're listening to it. Y'all all on social media. When you're listening to it, when it drops into your playlist on Thursday morning, boom, hit it and just... Hit that link and share. Share the link on your Facebook page. Take a screenshot. Share it on your Instagram or your Twitter. That's the easiest way you can do it. And it helps grow the show. And then give me feedback, man. What do you want to hear more about? What do you like? What do you not like? What can we do better? And that is also helpful. But until next time, it's your boy, Monk. Peace and blessings to you from the Most High. I'm out.